This is the official SAST podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. It would be great to see you there. And if you haven't checked out our most downloaded episode of 2018 with Stripe COO Claire Hughes-Johnson, you can do so on last week's episode. That really is a must. But to the show today, and what I just love about doing the show is its ability to build friendships and just non-transactional relationships with some really special people in our industry. And that's the case today, as I'm thrilled to welcome a friend in the form of Guy Pajani, founder and CEO at Sneak, the Developer first solution that automates finding and fixing vulnerabilities in your dependencies. And to date, Guy's raised over $32 million in VC funding with Sneak from some of the greats of venture, including Excel, GV, our dear friends at Bold Start, and Canaan Partners, just to name a few. As for Guy, prior to Sneak, he was the CTO of Akamai's web performance business following their acquisition of his startup Blaze.io. And before founding Blaze, Guy built web application security products, including the first web app firewall, AppShield, dynamic application security testing tool AppScan and static application security testing tool AppScan Dev Edition. And fun fact on Guy, he's the holder of 18 patents related to security and performance. And I'd also want to say a huge thank you to some dear friends of the show in the form of Elliot and Ed at Bold Start for the fantastic intro and questions for Guy today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, there's no argument from me on this. SaaS companies that adopt OKRs for goal setting and then execute aligned SaaS growth initiatives in areas like sales, marketing, marketing and customer success grow faster. And let's be honest, we all know that using spreadsheets to manage this is far from optimal. Well, I've got good news for you. Zocri allows you to track all your KPIs, create and manage OKRs, and align and optimize your team's activities, creating a smarter and more powerful SaaS growth engine. And if you sign up for a trial today, you can try Zocri for free and see its positive impact on metrics like MQLs, SQLs, MRR, and churn. So the most important thing you might do today to help your SaaS business grow is go to Zocri.com, that's Z-O okri.com to sign up now. And speaking of being smart with your operations, if you regularly listen to podcasts, you've heard of Betterment, a smart way to manage your money. They use cutting-edge technology to build you a personalized portfolio and provide you with fiduciary financial advice for one low transparent fee. But did you know that they can also provide your company with a 401k plan? Well, we all know that 401k plans and choosing them for your company can be a pretty time-consuming and confusing process. Well, with Betterment, it doesn't have to be. Betterment for Business is a turnkey 401 401k solution that offers ease of use, personalized financial advice, and very competitive pricing. And that's why the likes of Compass, Casper, and Harry's are just some of the companies that use Betterment's 401k to help further their employees' financial wellness. And you can learn more today at betterment.com slash That's betterment.com slash And finally, fundamentally, as a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations. It could be hiring execs. It could be developing managers, retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies. It helps companies like Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a really strong company culture. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, set up goal tracking, and even run employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement, so operators can really make sure top performers are happy. And Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to SaaS to listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Saster to receive that offer. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com forward slash Saster. Build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. But now I'm very excited to hand over to friend and phenomenal founder Guy Pajani, founder and CEO at Sneak. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up.
Guy, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. A very big hand to the wonderful Elliot at Bold Start for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Guy. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be here. Well, not at all. I'm very excited, but I want to kick off with a little on you. So tell me, Guy, how did you make your way into what we both know to be the wonderful world of SaaS and really come to found one of the most exciting companies in open source today, being SNCC? My startup experience kind of goes back to some of the first application security company, a company called Sanctum, that got acquired by Watchfire, they got acquired by by IBM. So my first dabble in SaaS was really what we called MSP, sort of a managed service profile. Like a, it was basically our kind of managed offering for Scan Enterprise, which was sort of our application security testing tool at the time. It was exploratory, like we we're still selling primarily software, but it was clearly the better way to do it. And it was more for the company became very clear that that is the means through which we want to sell. It's an ongoing relationship with the customer and it just kind of helps us make them more successful. But it was still kind of nascent in Watchfire days. And then after IBM, you know, when I left IBM and I founded a web performance company called Blaze, SaaS was very much a straight up there. It was a kind of almost a CDN complement that made websites faster. So running it as an operated service, right? You know, running something that we operate and the customer just consumes was very, very natural and the CDN space was there. So for me, it almost becomes weird now <laughs> to sort of think about a non-SaaS offering as part of the offering. And after, so Blaze was acquired by Akamai. I was CTO at Akamai for a bunch of years. Once again, being very, very used to a recurring and operated sort of hosted software and then left about three and a half years ago, uh, well, a little bit more now, to found uh, Sneak, which is once again a SaaS service dealing with uh, helping companies use open source code and, and stay secure. Well, I mean, time flies when you're having fun. I do have to ask you, given the kind of previous successful founding of companies that kind of across the years, is there anything that you particularly took away from them in terms of learning and maybe changed your operating mindset for how you started and think about running SNCC today? Wow. So there's definitely a lot that I've learned. I don't know that I can sort of succinctly tone it down. I will say that, you know, some of the key learnings were, one is the focus on the user, especially kind of aligns maybe with the SaaS mindset. You know, when you start a company, when you have an idea, it's very easy to get enamored with the technology, with the product, with the idea, with how we're going to disrupt the market. And as you build the software, you know, even if your key secret formula is technology or is something that is a fundamental change, you have to, as you build the product, really, really focus on the users. Ask for starters questions like, so what's the user pain point that this solves? And just translates and translates the opportunity into the problem that you're trying to solve. And then, and this is probably more important, you work with the customers in every step of the way. So when we, in my kind of last startup at Blaze, we built, it was very kind of hard tech, kind of almost a compiler for web pages. And first, that was just kind of the nerd in his cave, you know, sitting around in a room and, and writing software. And, you know, we built some good tech there. But then once we launched the beta, the amount of learnings that we've had was spectacular around what people actually wanted to consume. And it did also discover there's a lot that we built that was kind of wasteful. It was great technology, but it didn't solve a real problem. And on the flip side, there were a lot of gaps that we left unattended. Uh, so it wasn't really the smartest way to, to ship it. With Sneak, we actually launched about a month after we incorporated or after we really started the company. And we launched a beta it was an open beta. You know, when you launch a product, you need to be, if you're not embarrassed when you launch it, you know, you ship too late. You know, we sort of put it out there and we worked with customers tightly, tightly, you know, with users. We have a freemium model, so not necessarily paying customers, just users out there. And that evolved the product dramatically. It just changed what we thought was important, you know, going from whatever command and interface to GitHub integration. doesn't even matter. Like every field has its own spaces, but it helped us understand what users actually want to consume and 
today that is a very poor philosophy of how we operate. So I think this fanatic pursuit of user satisfaction of what is the problem that you're solving for the user and building and shipping your software, the pacing and the eventual result surrounding around that is probably, I guess, my primary lesson. No, I love that lesson of kind of ship early and ship often. But I do want to structure the discussion slightly today. You know me, otherwise my brain goes everywhere in three distinct themes. First being the product itself, then moving more to the business model behind the product and the monetization side, and then finishing on the leadership elements that really bring this all together. Does that work well for you, Guy? Sure, yeah, let's go for it. So starting on product strategy, a big question that many founders have is the question of whether to go deep in functionality or maybe go wider in another aspect. So for you, it might be in language. I know this is something that you face from uh, my chats with Ed and Elliot at Bold Start. I'd love to hear, how did you approach that decision-making and, and what was the thought process for you when pondering this debate? Sure, so it's a really good question. When we set out to build Sneak, you know, when I did, I focused on the aspiration, the mission was to get developers to embrace security. And it's a mission that we've had for a long time. You know, the world of application security has wanted developers to embrace security into the development process for many years now and kind of failed to do so. And so when we set out to achieve this, you know, we believe that in Sneak that we can break through, we wanted to really, really focus on the user that matters and ensure that we build the solution that they would want to use, right? Think about this developer as the most important user of the product and then put ourselves in their shoes and indeed work with them, as I mentioned before, to ensure that we build the product for them. But the challenge is that developer is a very broad statement and, you know, a JavaScript developer works very, very differently than a Java developer versus a, you know, a Go developer. There are different communities, different ages, enterprises versus online. So we made a conscious decision to focus on Node.js, sort of a flavor of JavaScript that was very kind of felt like it had the right balance of adoption on one hand. You know, it was widely used enough to be interesting, but also it was small enough to be still fairly consistent. And we built a product that I believe was a really, really powerful product for that user persona. And also we really invested in getting into that community. And this niching exercise, right, like focusing and finding our audience has helped us build a product that was just really, really good, I believe, and kind of break through to that developer view. It didn't help revenue too much. So we built this product that, you know, no JS developers were, they loved it, they embraced it. We had a reputation. We went to an enterprise and they said, oh, this is awesome. Can you also do this for, you know, like my Java app, my Go app? And so the end result was that this focus or this sort of attention on the specific persona helped us build a really, really good product and break through, but it delayed our revenue. So we subsequently kind of swung the pendulum a little bit and we broadened, we focused on broadening the product, on adding Ruby and Java and Python, just like more programming languages, more stacks, you know, from GitHub to Bitbucket to GitLab, just more environments and scaling from scaling our systems to not just focus on that one environment, but others and adapting our methodologies that we support to those environments. But we were already had a good anchor at what good looks like and what successful adoption looks like, as well as a loyal base. You know, we had a base on which we could build sort of successful businesses, right? So our first deals were deals that they bought because first and foremost, they really cared about our support for Node.js. And now we also supported those other environments. And, you know, over time, of course, that has changed. And now we can lead with pretty much any of the languages on the platform. So I think that approach has worked very, very well in helping us develop the right product. And if we had gone broad, it would have been very easy to just revert again to the lowest common denominator. Well, today we're forced to have deep support in every one of those ecosystems. And it's it's what makes the product great. Can I ask, you said there about the good base and then kind of the expansion subsequently. What does good base really mean to you? And what is the kind of metrics that really guide that thinking? Is it kind of a revenue number? Is it a user base number? Is it a pull request number? 
number, how do you think about the right time to increase the verticals focused on, so to speak? So I don't know if every industry is the same on those elements. I think for starters, you have to, to say that a good base is a sufficiently large user base that really loves your product and that gives you feedback to continuously do it better. So, you know, as a starting point, it needs to be a group of people that you can make loyal and that help you improve and that as you expand, you know, they will be your anchor. So you might still be mediocre in some other environment and you'd still be learning, but this core base would stay stable and would be more valuable. Now, at some point at the beginning, it has to be about product feedback and it has to be around, at the end of the day, we're startup land. So I run metrics that help you raise the next round or sort of have those relevant audiences. At some point, those metrics have to include revenue. I believe that when you offer an offering of a car that is freemium, revenue is like a second order metric. So, you know, your first metric is about usage. It's about adoption. It's about just getting people and the virality maybe element of it, right? User acquisition around getting people onto the platform. And then they're on the freemium platform. You've evolved your product faster thanks to the fact that many people are using it, assuming you listen to them and you build it out. And then using that base, you start learning how do you convert them to monetization. So what it means is that money would come later, you know, revenue would come later. But when it comes, it will be multiplied, right? It would grow faster. So I talk about when to expand. You have to somehow factor first and foremost feedback to the product and usage. But then you have to think about what are the metrics that would successfully get you to the next milestone. And, you know, I was fortunate that Ed and Elliot at Boldstart and also with the support of Canaan, they were very supportive for us. So they understood, you know, and Ed volunteered even like it's various points of time to say, don't distract yourself right now with revenue. We both know that's not the focus. Make sure that you get that user base that you get that adoption. So whatever those metrics are, you need to ensure that you have them for the next round, that your investors are bought in and that you don't prematurely focus on revenue if that's not the right one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we spoke about kind of adoption and usage there. And I, I do want to kind of have one final question on the product itself. We, we touched on MVP earlier also. In terms of feature prioritization, how do you think about feature prioritization decisions today? And that versus maybe technical debt and all the other intricacies that one has to think about when thinking about feature upgrade, feature prioritization, so to speak? It's really tough. Feature prioritization is really tough. Like in startups, at first you're trying to get, you know, one thing that catches, but then once you have that hit, then people ask you, you know, for everything and there are a million good ideas and choosing the right one is really, really hard. So one thing that I would say is just users. So maybe I will say within features, there are three classes of features, right? There are features that get you into a POC or an evaluation. There's features that get you to win a POC or an evaluation. There's features that help a customer be successful, you know, after they've purchased. And different aspects of the product are more important. So you want customers to be successful. You can't just delay that last category to the very end, but it depends on what your problem is at a given time to prioritize your capabilities. At the very beginning, you need to get in. You need to be evaluated, to be inspected, whether it's in a bake-off or if it's just online attention. So you want to build the capabilities, even if they're very narrow, very shallow, to get into an evaluation and have something compelling to offer. And then, you know, a second set of features is around delivering on that. You know, you actually need to successfully, once they've used the product, they want to continue using it. So you have to deliver on it. And oftentimes there's a core, core like secret sauce that has to be there that they need to get hooked onto in that environment. And then they need enough in the surround sound to be able to get through the POC. And then once they've purchased, they're going to start rolling it out. They're going to start using it on an ongoing basis. There's going to be a whole set of other capabilities that you need to build. And if you totally neglect those, then the customers are not going to stay customers for very long, especially problematic also in the land and expand environment. So at different phases of your life, you know, especially in the early days in startups, you have to maybe evolve from focusing more on the former 
to focusing more on the latter. For us today, pretty much every feature we build has a set of customers that have asked for it and we work with them and we build very, very tightly right alongside with them. And that helps us ensure that what we build is the right thing. And that's definitely how we prioritize features. We ensure there's always a set of features that we contain the amount that are more about the future. They're more about the vision. They're more experimental. Even then we work with customers, but we might be the ones volunteering the idea versus asks from the customer side. I'm too intrigued not to ask this one guy, but it's the case of you said that about kind of working supremely closely with those users. In terms of kind of a problem of agency, how do you think about and get around that when maybe the people that you're selling to on the higher enterprise side, the CIOs of these big enterprises, are not the primary users of the product? And how do you think about that agency problem? So agency is a, is a big deal. Security is a, it's especially evident in security because oftentimes what you're doing is you're reducing risk. So, you know, security doesn't have a natural feedback cycle. You know, it doesn't hurt until it hurts really bad, you know, until you've been breached. So within that, you know, working and, and increasing urgency and agency both to like care about the problem as a whole and specifically to purchase your product or use it in the first place is indeed a challenge. A lot of it comes down, you know, I feel like a broken record here a little bit coming back to the user, but a lot of it comes back to understanding what is the user's need, you know? So in our world, when we talk about the use of open source libraries and components, the need or the problem that people feel is the fact that they keep needing to deal with these dependencies. They keep needing to, you know, know what happened with them. Is there a problem? Monitor them, know if they need to change them. So we come along and we try to make that super, super easy, right? We'll just let you know that there's a problem with this library, some vulnerability, some license problem. Here we'll hand over a fix element. So what we need to do is we use more content and communication about the problem to help you try out the tool. And we've invested in basically getting you bought in to just how easy it is to do it, right? When you talk about agency, there's a delta between how much you want to do something and how hard it is to battle or to sort of balance, get somebody to actually take action. One way to do it is that you increase how much they care. And the second way to do it is just to lower how hard it is to deal with it. So we've, in six case, and you know, we've really lowered the how hard it is to deal with this problem. And everybody, developers want to build secure code and they, they want to deal with their dependencies as well, but it was just too hard. So we made it dead easy. You know, you just get going. It's very, very easy. When it comes to the purchase itself, you have to come back and think it's a different, because we have a different user, as you've alluded, you know, we have a different user versus the buyer. And then we have to now help those developers translate to the technical value that we provide around finding issues, about fixing vulnerabilities, around, you know, not disrupting development, translate that into business impacts, dollar values, sometimes even understand a company's initiatives and tie it into that company's initiatives. And at that point, your user is hopefully your champion already. They, you know, you're helping them sell internally. You know, in our case, you know, you'll be hard pressed to find a chief security officer where the development team comes along and says, we want to embed this security product and they want to open the checkbook, but help them do that translation. No, absolutely. I mean, in terms of doing that translation itself, though, and kind of moving naturally onto the business model, because we chatted before about freemium, and you said that successful freemium requires giving away your secret source. Can I ask, what did you really mean by this? And, and the big one for me, guys, like, how does one give away enough secret source to attract people, but also not give away too much secret source that there's no source left? So, so I think I, I kind of firmly stand behind this element that successful freemium needs to have the secret sauce in the free tier. It comes down to the delta between freemium and trial. So if you are offering a product that you can taste and assess your product for free, but you can't actually properly use it, then what you're doing is you're doing a trial. You're allowing somebody to try out your product. They're going to hit the wall and they're going to stop using the product or they're going to purchase it, but you don't have this ongoing relationship with them. While a freemium offering means that you've defined a certain use 
use case, a profile of a user, a profile of a use case. And for that use case, you want the user to sort of start using your product and never want to stop. You know, you want them to just get going, use the product and get to a point where they just, they can't think of what will happen. At the very least, if they removed your product, clearly they would need to get another product to substitute it. It's now a part of their core. So to successfully do that, you are constantly selling and endearing yourself onto the user. And to do that, you have to give them your secret sauce. It's this is your opportunity to make a great impression and to have them be, again, enamored with the product. And where you want to sell, like the reason or the, the delta between that and the premium, it's not in the secret sauce, is it? It's in the surround sound. It's in the fact that if you're in a large company, you need all these enterprise components. You know, in our case, the automated vulnerability detection, the automated remediation, and the sort of the full breadth of the security vulnerability database, that's all in the free tier. But if you want to connect it with an on-premise source code management platform like a GitHub Enterprise or the likes, then you know, you're in an enterprise, you have this enterprise need, and you kind of classify yourself into the premium tiers, right? Or if you want group management or more executive level reports, or if you want single sign-on integration, all of those components, that implies, you know, that's the, the surround sound. It's very important. It makes it successful in the enterprise. But those are the things that move you into the enterprise tier. And then the other thing that we do in that context is, is just volume. So you can use the product very successfully. If you're a profile of a company that is small enough, you're never going to pay us. And that's okay. Enjoy the product. And you become a champion of us. You sort of, you, you, you champion that you might move to another company or you might grow your company. You'll get to the point where your volume justifies using it. But you, your opportunity to, if you're in a freemium product, the reason you're doing freemium is because you want people to use the product and never want to stop. And that requires putting the most compelling capabilities of your product inside that free tier. If you hide it, you're just making a bad impression. No, I love that boldness. And I actually love the distinction between freemium and trial there. And I haven't heard it quite so succinctly described, guys. So big uh, congrats on that. I do, I do want to discuss the one element that founders often ask me about, which is pricing. Always a big quandary. We had Krish at Chargebee on the show recently, and he said that transparency and pricing isn't always actually optimal. Uh, would you agree with this? And how do you think about and approach pricing today? So transparency and pricing is compelling in some cases, and think a little bit less so in the top tier enterprise. And once again, it comes back a little bit to the audience you're in. So some element of transparency and pricing to just anchor a customer, I think classifies their perception of you. For instance, if you don't have a pricing page at all, and you just have a contact us, then if I just like pick a little bit on developer tooling, but I think this is true in general, people will perceive you to be a more expensive product, and they would put a higher bar around using you. You have to talk to somebody. And also, you know, like many of us are still, you know, we kind of like our own introvert surroundings, and we might not want to talk to a person. So if you hide your pricing entirely, then people don't get that barometer of just where to place you in their mental model. And if somebody compares a bunch of products, and some of them have this type of transparent pricing, and some don't, the ones that have it would just slightly naturally be more appealing to somebody because they gave you more information with less effort. On the flip side, if you put very low pricing and you intend to have high pricing on sort of the high tiers, then people anchor on them. Suddenly you you're become your own enemy in the sense that you put some low tier that you think there's a big jump to the next one, but people are going to try to see if they can size themselves into that smaller price point. And they will judge your product, not on that, again, sort of secret sauce and general value, and I always want to use it, but rather they will ask themselves, can I just make do with this slightly much lower or much cheaper tier? And yet by doing so, they're actually not setting themselves up for success because that doesn't fit necessarily the profile of the company or the usage that they have. So it's, it's a very fine act and I don't have like a great answer for it. But what I like both as a consumer and a company and what I advise kind of companies to do is to have some element of transparent pricing, but just be very wary of the anchor. And one way to do it is just to have a unit price. So you have 
have an element out there that says, you know, this is how much it costs. You know, in our case, we advertise our standard and our pro pricing, and that allows us to have some element of like your price per developer. What's the ballpark starting point that you have? And then we make sure that our enterprise tiers that do not have public pricing are proportional, right? And like we can stand behind the delta in value between somebody buying one of the lower tiers and somebody buying the enterprise offering. No, absolutely. I love the focus now on, on kind of the anchoring and why it's so important. I do want to move into a final element, though, before we move into the quick fire guy, which is kind of your leadership of the ship, so to speak. You've scaled teams across offices now as CEO with immense success. Can I ask, how do you approach maybe the framework for good communication across offices in such rapid times of growth for you? Sure. So I'm very passionate about communication. You know, I think at the end of the day, a company is just a group of people rowing, hopefully, in the same direction. And if you're in, in a good market and you have good people, then good things will come if you communicate well. So, you know, specifically for Snake, you know, I think we're, you know, we have the right approach. We're in the right market. You know, we have amazing people. And I feel like our two paths to destruction, right? Like our two ways to sort of mess up a good thing are either to miscommunicate or to hire the wrong people. So, you know, I put a lot of emphasis on both of those. Hiring the right people is a whole topic of conversation. But if we talk about communication, especially distributed, I see two natural paths of communication that happen to us humans. You, you naturally communicate with people in your group, in your org, in your team, and you naturally communicate with people in your office. So SNCC started off as a London and Tel Aviv split company. And then fairly quickly, we started adding people in the US. And now we have an office in Boston and, and a good representation in Ottawa. And what we try to do is we try to sort of create, or I try to do a crisscross kind of network of communication between the org structure and the location of people. So for instance, for us, our VP marketing and our product organization both report to the same person because our product is our marketing and because it's very, very important for me for those two entities to remain tightly, tightly in touch. So we ensure our free users, our online users are also very, very happy. And yet that the capabilities are marketed well. So they're in the same org, but the VP marketing sits in the same office with our VP sales. And that helps them naturally communicate because clearly it's very important for marketing and sales to be connected. Similarly, at the engineering side, we split the engineering teams, the sort of five, six person product teams that have a product manager, a team lead, and about five or so people that are in the team. We split them between London and Tel Aviv because those teams still communicate because they're within the team, but between the teams, they communicate naturally because they're in the same office. So crisscrossing all of those lines helps build a better foundation, a stronger foundation that just it's a pain. It's an effort that the teams need to pay to communicate. And I think we're in pretty good shape now in, with Zoom, with Slack, you know, with all the tools that we use, but it builds a strong foundation to communicate well. You know, I've grown very fond of the word scaffolding, which I've not used at all until the last year or so, but it, it's a fair analogy because it helps you. It's a foundation that helps you build higher. So this builds that type of scaffolding for a good communication so it can grow. I'm so intrigued. You said there about kind of loving and spending so much time on hiring. I couldn't agree with you more in terms of it being its own episode, but I have one question which I love to ask, and it's what kind of question in an interview kind of really determining a candidate's strength do you love to ask you find reveals the most about that candidate? So one guest said on the show the other day, how did you prepare for this interview? That tells him the most that he could want to know. Is there a question which you find the most revealing? It's a good question. So today, you know, I have a great team and my team does the majority of the sort of professional interviews and a lot of my fit comes or like my, my job in these interviews, except for the sort of the executive interviews, is more to ensure that this person is a, is a culture fit and has the right kind of temperament, which I guess is similar to work and succeed in sneak. So, you know, I guess maybe I'll throw two out there. One thing that I ask is I ask, which project are you most proud of? What thing that you worked on in recent years are you most proud of? Because I think that, you know, both gives them an opportunity to talk about a technical or professional accomplishment, but also goes to show 
know, you know, what, what do they choose to say that they're proud of? Maybe a slightly more entertaining question that I, I really, really like is I ask people, what do you want to be when you grow up? And first of all, it's like an entertaining question, kind of gets people a little bit off guard and they think about it. But the other is Sneak is a home. It's a family. People don't tend to leave Sneak. And, and that's a good thing. I don't want to fix that. You know, like it's a good thing that people stay. But the reason that happens is because we try to make sure that we also give them room for growth, so room for sort of achieving where they want to go. So by asking that question, what I want to understand is, you know, what matters to you in life in a year's time when you're in Sneak? What do you hope to sort of look back at the year and say, here's where I am or here's what I've accomplished? But it also comes up with what do you want to be when you grow up? I, I love those two questions. I am too interested. You mentioned the Boston, the Tel Aviv and the London now and even Ottawa, sorry. So how do you find the different kind of hiring capabilities in those very different markets? Is there a big divergence between them? Yeah, they're actually, they're very, very different. So some elements remain the same. Good people can bring good people and references from your team are far stronger than, you know, the weak signal of an interview. So that's true across all of those locations. You know, the specific disposition and what people look for are very, very different. Like in London, I still need to explain to, to quite a few users, you know, what the options are. And I still need to talk about what risk level they might be taking by coming to work for a startup. And it depends. Look, there's a variety. Some people are very bought in and they're all about the options, for instance, versus the uh, the equity. But I'd say there's a little bit more bias maybe in, in favor of the regular employment, if you will, right? Sort of the salary and the likes and just like less understanding about the startup. In Israel, it's kind of startup nation. It's all about the equity and, you know, there's no need to sort of explain what options are or why a startup isn't risky to you because you just go on if thing, you know, it won't happen here. But, you know, if something happened, you can kind of find another job in a heartbeat. So that's kind of one key distinction. The other distinction I might point out is the way that you find good people. You know, in Israel, for instance, there's a lot of uh, the, the army serves as a bit of this uh, natural filter. And a lot of the people that we hire come from specific places where we served in the army. And, and you know, that has a very specific type of talent. In London, there might be more like this, for me, the beginning, the speaker circle, you know, the, there's more events and sort of public speaking and the likes in London. And I pulled a bunch of people from there. Boston is today, we hire still very much on the network level, but I think there's a really good college system there. And especially for sort of sales and, and field roles that we have over there, hiring out of the education system is very different. So you have to adapt the sourcing more than anything. You need to adapt to the specific location and the acknowledgement of what matters to people in that ecosystem as you discuss compensation and terms and alleviating fears, that changes per ecosystem. The core interview process, deciding what's a good candidate, who's the right fit, all of those things remain the same. I mean, so much to discuss on the hiring and scaling of the team there, but I, I, th I think that's a round two. I do want to move into my favorite element, though, guy, of any interview being the 60-second Saster. Are you ready? I say a short statement. You give me your immediate thoughts. Sure. Let's do it. So one from our friend Ed Sim. How did you learn to let go and trust your team so you could really scale the business? Uh, super, super hard, and I think I'm still learning that element. But to me, a lot of it is about trust. When I start with somebody new, I start by communicating a ton with them. Like every day we have a meeting, and as we find the right communication patterns and we build the right trust, I trust them to be doing the right thing, and I trust that they will communicate with me at the right points of time. You know, communication sometimes is plans, sometimes it's about knowing to sort of send me a quick Slack DM when it's relevant, and it corresponds to trust. The more I trust that you will be doing things well, the less I need you to communicate. How do you know when's the right time to hire your first salesperson? The first salesperson you need to hire early, I think. I think uh, one of the things that I didn't appreciate at first is that sales itself is a product. You know, how you position your product to be purchased. How do you translate the value it provides to dollars? All of 
those are products in their own rights. And just like your core product, you need iteration on them. So the first version is going to be crummy. No, it's not. It's, it's a V1 and you're probably not going to be super good at it. So hiring a first salesperson is as soon as you have something that you're not entirely, entirely embarrassed to try and, and sell because just having somebody dedicated to build that up is going to evolve your product. VP sales is a different topic. Your VP sales, your leader of sales, some are enterprise oriented, some are inside sales oriented. So you should wait until you know a decent guess at your primary mode of selling before you bring a, a big leader. A very easy one here. Tell me a moment in your life that served as an inflection point and maybe changed the way you think. I think the move to Ottawa. So you know, I was working for an Israeli company called Sanctum and got acquired by Watchfire and I moved to Ottawa, Canada in the process. And so it's not quite a moment, but that move has been a big life changer for me, you know, beyond sort of the, the obvious life implications. It opened up a whole world of perspective. And I think we underestimate how much of a bubble do we live in when we talk about specific language, a specific surrounding and country. We have all these biases around us that we get desensitized to. I'm moving from Tel Aviv to Ottawa, which are like two very, very different places, has really opened my mind to kind of cultural differences and to nuances even within the Western world, even within sort of even same languages that are very, very distinct. And I think made me much more sensitive to to people and to the nuances of communication. You know, I keep talking about communications and users here, but I think that was a great learning year for me. What do you believe that most around you disbelieve, Guy? I'd like to say that you don't need to look for quick return to do something good. You know, I sort of, I truly believe in good karma. You know, I try whenever I have a conversation with someone, even if it's an interest conversation, they're trying to sell me something or some investment conversations that I'm actually not interested in or the likes. I always look for ways that I can help them, help the person that I talk around. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. But I also believe that over time that pays great, great dividends. The only caveat I would say is that I think I've surrounded myself with people that do believe <laughs> that approach. So I think it's criticism on that over the years, you know, like, why are you helping here? And there's cases where you have some short-term loss because of it, but it is sort of a firm belief of mine and almost like a life guiding value that I try to adhere to. And then final one, and I love that on Karma. I'm so with you on that one. But a final one, what do you know now, Guy, that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with Sneak? That it's all about people. I feel at the beginning of Sneak, I thought much more. I, I learned my lesson about user and I learned my lesson about, you know, shipping early and kind of interacting with them. And like I've brought really, really good people along, but I didn't appreciate about the people to role fit. And we had we had some time lost and some iterations at the beginning of Sneak to sort of learn that lesson a little bit about not just the caliber and the talent of an individual, but rather the fit of that person to the job and kind of specific context that they have in front of them and setting them up for success. So, you know, we've fortunately managed to overcome those and everybody sort of continues to be happy, but there was definitely a lot of sort of effort and some heartburn kind of that caused by that. Well, Guy, I knew this would be a very, very special episode ever since we first met, but thank you so much for joining me today. And this has been so much fun. It was a blast. Thanks for having me, Harry. And again, a huge thanks to Guy for giving up his time today to be on the show. You can find out more from Guy on Twitter at GuyPod. Likewise, I want to say a big thank you to both Ed and Elliot at Bold Start for the fantastic questions today and for the introduction to Guy. I really do so appreciate that. We'd also love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can do so on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, there's no argument from me on this. SaaS companies that adopt OKRs for goal setting and then execute aligned SaaS growth initiatives in 
areas like sales, marketing, and customer success grow faster. And let's be honest, we all know that using spreadsheets to manage this is far from optimal. Well, I've got good news for you. Zocri allows you to track all your KPIs, create and manage OKRs, and align and optimize your team's activities, creating a smarter and more powerful SaaS growth engine. And if you sign up for a trial today, you can try Zocri for free and see its positive impact on metrics like MQLs, SQLs, MRR, and churn. So the most important thing you might do today to help your SaaS business grow is go to Zocri.com, that's Z-O-K-R-I.com, to sign up now. And speaking of being smart with your operations, if you regularly listen to podcasts, you've heard of Betterment, a smart way to manage your money. They use cutting-edge technology to build you a personalized portfolio and provide you with fiduciary financial advice for one low transparent fee. But did you know that they can also provide your company with a 401k plan? Well, we all know that 401k plans and choosing them for your company can be a pretty time-consuming and confusing process. Well, with Betterment, it doesn't have to be. Betterment for Business is a turnkey 401k solution that offers ease of use, personalized financial advice, and very competitive pricing. And that's why the likes of Compass, Casper, and Harry's are just some of the companies that use Betterment's 401k to help further their employees' financial wellness. And you can learn more today at betterment.com slash Saster. That's betterment.com slash Saster. And finally, fundamentally, as a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations. It could be hiring execs. It could be developing managers, retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies. It helps companies like Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a really strong company culture. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, set up goal tracking, and even run employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement. So operators can really make sure top performers are happy. And Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to SASTA listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash SASTA to receive that offer. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E.com forward slash SASTA. Build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. As always, I cannot emphasize enough how much I appreciate your support, and it really does mean so much to me. I can't wait to bring you a phenomenal episode next week.